Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is going on, everybody? This is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO here at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming at you today for another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast, and this one near and dear to my heart. It's another topic that if you've listened to this podcast and here you can hear my blood pressure raised with some of these episodes, um, this is one that tends to, just because it's a passionate topic of mine, it's a place where I spent a good chunk of my career thinking that was the answer. And I don't want to go to the point it's useless, but because um, it isn't, I think that's where I, you know a lot of the discussion and ridiculous dichotomies that get created. But around manual therapy and segmental specificity, and there was a nice review article that was recently uh, published in the Scientific Reports Journal out of like the Nature Group. Um, so high level journal. I mean, it's one of the higher level journals. I can't remember their impact factor and all those fancy journal metrics, but they spoke about it. We're going to talk in detail about it and how it kind of relates to what we've seen in our experience um, and kind of just summarize the study just so you guys can and give you guys obviously the citation and all that good stuff uh, so you can take a peek at it and look for your own self and see some of the things um, that go into it. Jared, uh, our partner here, has you know posted a social media and he can talk about it because he, 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 of course, put the research out there and had a nice meme to go along with it. And you know, some pretty respectful discussion, as far as I know, I haven't peeked at the detailed uh, comments on it. We'll get into that a little bit, but before we do that, let's hear how Jared Hall and his international travels are going. How are you doing, Jared? Hey, man. Good to be back. Um, I, I definitely enjoyed going over to Europe. I got to pop into Strasbourg, France, got to pop into, uh, you know, a few different cities in Germany, Heidelberg, Nuremberg, uh, Stuttgart, Frankfurt, uh, got to, pop over to Prague, which, man, if you haven't ever been to Prague in the Czech Republic, I strongly encourage you to go. One of the coolest cities I've ever been. Uh, but, you know, after traveling, being on, being on the run for, for a while, it is good to be back home, good to be uh, back in the studio talking with you and, of course, diving back into uh, looking at research and seeing what's what's new in the PT world. So uh, it, was, it was great timing that uh, this study was published online. I think it was... It was Author's first last name, first author's last name is Nim, um, published uh, online December 3rd. So I got back December 4th. So this was published one day before I returned home. So it was, it was fresh. There's lots of fodder to, to go over. So uh, this is something that you and I have talked about a lot. And we've talked about some of these individual studies, in particular, that this review article, the systematic review included, but it's cool to actually see somebody go through and systematically systematically review the available evidence and kind of put it all together to, to create some comparisons with a larger patient base and, and um, see if we can get a little bit more robust robust evidence. I'm looking forward to talking about this one. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a good study. It tickles the biases, of course, and it, it definitely um, is one. Like I said, oops, as I'm trying to over over uh, automate things. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, just kind of the schematic, you know, setup of the study and kind of how they performed a systematic review. Cause I think it's worth discussing as far as, um, you know, looking at some of the nuts and bolts so people can see how they gathered studies, what they looked at. Um, cause there were some different, you know, components of the study that I thought were interesting. It's a well done systematic review. They did, they followed all the 
guidelines that you need to, to um, follow. I can't remember the exact tools they used to make sure they were, you know, performing these reviews up to like, you know, Cochrane level standards and all that good stuff. Um, they use a Cochrane level, um, you know, tool for risk of bias, which I think is important, especially around manipulative studies where, you know, shockingly people who manipulate and teach it, research on it and might have a biased view on what's going on in there. So you got to, you know, take that into account as you read studies. Um, but do you mind kind of discussing with the folks who are listening? What, what, what did that study look like as far as, you know, what did they do? How many studies they ended up looking at? And, um, you know, uh, we can go further after that. Yeah, sure. So first, what I'm going to do is just go ahead and actually say the, the full title of the article. So if people want to look this up, and of course, we'll have it in the show notes, but it's the importance of selecting the correct site to apply spinal manipulation when treating spinal pain, myth or reality, a systematic review. Um, and that's uh, author's last name, Nim, N-I-M. Um, so it was kind of, I liked this study because they did not lump mobilization and manipulation together, right? And in some uh, different cultures, some, some different countries around the world, if you say manipulation, that could include uh, high velocity, low amplitude thrust, as well as joint mobilizations and, you know, low, low amplitude manual therapy. But um, in this review, they specifically searched for high, high velocity, low amplitude thrust techniques. So what we would call spinal manipulation, Right. Uh, or, you know, a, a, an adjustment looking for trying to elicit the cavitation or, you know, the, the clicky poppies is what they were looking at. And uh, they ended up after searching multiple databases, uh, I believe, from the year 2000 to present day, it was about a 20 year span or so. They came away with 10 articles that that actually fit the bill that were um, spinal manipulation that looked at specifically primary outcomes were patient reports. So subjective reports of improved pain or disability. And then secondarily, they looked at objective measures as well. So uh, improvements in range of motion, improvements in strength, that sort of thing. Um, improvements in, you know, things that you could actually physically measure as an assessor rather than going on subjective reports. So they broke it down into three different categories. They were kind of trying to uh, compare between. So the first category was spinal manipulation applied to a target site as compared to the other side. So let's say you've done uh, whatever assessment technique you do, palpation, palpatory assessment, passive accessory, intervertebral motion assessment, um, side glides, little pressy guesses, pokies, whatever it is. And you've determined that C4, C5 is the target area on the left that is dysfunctional in a patient. So they compared manipulating C4, C5 on the left to C4, C5 on the right. And they were looking at, do, is there any difference? Does it matter which side? Do we see any difference in patient reported outcomes? Do we see any difference in objective measures? Uh, the second group that they looked at was uh, spinal manipulation applied to the target site as compared to the general area. So that would be, you've determined that somebody has a problem at C2, C3 with whatever your assessment techniques are, and they compare targeted spinal manipulation to C2, C3 on the left side to maybe just doing like a general mid cervical spine manipulation or a lower cervical spine manipulation. So you're still in the same region, but you're not directly trying to target that super specific level that you determined with your hyper specific assessment uh, approach is dysfunctional. 
And then finally, the last group was uh, that target segment. Again, we'll say C2, C3 on the left as compared to just doing like a mid thoracic spine, uh, you know, manipulation technique. So you're at a distal segment or a distal location or maybe even going as far as um, somebody had lumbar dysfunction and you manipulate the the mid or upper uh, thoracic spine. So across all 10 of the studies that met the inclusion criteria, um, various ones of those studies kind of compared those different um, target treatments. And every study didn't compare each one of those target treatments, of course. A few of the studies compared uh, ipsilateral to contralateral. A few of the studies compared uh, target treatment to the region. A few of the studies compared target, target treatment to um, a distal location. And uh, they assessed for risk of bias. And surprisingly, uh, all all of the studies but one were fairly low on the risk of bias scale, which was encouraging to see. That means the researchers were doing a pretty good job. They were declaring conflicts of interest. They were declaring if they received funding. They were blinding patients adequately. They were blinding assessors adequately. So they really brought down the risk of risk of bias. There, were, there was one study that was rated as fairly high risk of bias um, based on the way that it was conducted and patient blinding and you know not disclosing conflicts of interest and that sort of thing. So um, overall, we could say that these, this is probably a pretty decent first pass at this type of evidence. So before we go any further, just want to see if you had anything to add to that, Mark. No, I think the risk of all, you know, bias that, you know, they talk about, you know, random sequence generation, uh, allocation, consumment, um, you know, some of these things are difficult to do. <laughs> um, the, the participants were naive to spinal manipulation treatment, which I think is important because, um, you know, if you conduct studies in your biased where this is what we do, we manipulate, we, we click and stick or we do whatever. Um, and that's, that's what we define ourselves of. And we create an environment in the context of humans that are you know, salivating to have that done to them, then it's probably not the most, you know, unbiased place to conduct a research study um, there. So I, I like that as part of it. Blinding of outcome assessment, you know, making sure the folks that are assessing outcomes weren't the people that are delivering treatments. Um, also incomplete outcome data that, you know, intention to treat analysis type thing where they're looking at, you know, hey, if people are dropping out, are they still getting included in the, in the data analysis? And then you're reporting, um, you know, there's, there's significant, your clear discernible reports of how many people are dropping out and not, um, obviously people that don't drop, if there's a big dropout rate and, um, yet you, the people that stayed in, of course, are going to be a biased sample of people that had a positive response to things, um, selective reporting, you know, and there's other sources of bias they looked at too. Um, but I was, you know, kind of impressed too. There was decent, uh, you know, risk of bias, uh, thing. There was one high risk of bias, a few moderates and, and, uh, you know, I think five low, um, which is good. You know, there's always going to be bias for humans. I don't think there's ever going to be a bias, perfectly bias free study. Um, but obviously there's things we can do. Um, and we, as I'm like, I'm sort of some sort of high level researcher, but you know, things that researchers can do to help, you know, mitigate the bias as much as possible and create, uh, you know, more of a, you know, is less of a contextually influenced, um, you know, results in their theory where it's more, Hey, can we truly strip it down to the mechanisms of the, you know, tool under study, not as, and, and take as much of that extraneous influential variables out of the equation. So I think that, you know, it's a great uh, review. I thought they did a good job, um, you know, really following good methods and, um, you know, came up with some, some interesting, some interesting uh, results. So what do you, do you think we're, we're time to start talking about those results? 
Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into that. And I want to, first of all, encourage anybody listening to go read this study yourself. Like we could, we could talk, we could, we could word vomit a bunch of the the results and that sort of thing. But uh, that's not, that's not good for a podcast medium. So I would encourage you to go actually read this and don't always necessarily take our word for it or anybody else's word for it. It's good to get your eyes on this data. It's good to see how they designed the study and, and learn about it yourself and get, get better at reading this type of information. But um, if we, if we go ahead and kind of gloss over the nitty gritty details of the results, uh, what we can see is their, their conclusive findings or what, what the authors came away with. They ended up looking at 31 different metrics or 31 different outcomes, um, you know, from pain pressure thresholds at different sites to range of motions at different sites to strength measurements at different sites to uh, different ways to measure uh, patient reported disability. And the direct quote is uh, none of the so the systematic review included 10 randomized control trial clinical studies. Um, of which nine were considered to have credible results. None of the nine studies detected any statistically significant differences in the 31 outcome measures for the two treatment approaches. In other words, spinal manipulative therapy, given a clinician determined correct vertebral level, did not have better outcomes than treatment given more haphazardly. Uh, so I think that that is, I think that that's a really interesting statement for a couple of reasons. Number one, they did point out that one of the studies was a high risk of bias. And the only study that showed any positive results was also the one that had a high risk of bias. So that's really important to remember when you have researchers actually going through and assessing the risk of bias in a study that should, you know, give more and less weight to the the results of that particular study. So when you use a risk risk of bias assessment tool and it has a high risk of bias, and that just happens to be the only study that showed statistically significant differences, that should raise a little bit of a red flag. Then the next thing that should jump out to you, none of these 31 outcomes showed even statistically significant differences. And I think that that's that's something that a lot of people gloss over because oftentimes we don't think about the difference between statistical or clinical significance. And typically, um, almost always, you will see statistical significance before you see clinical significance. Right. So we can uh, say that um, their pain, a a group of patients pain changed, um, you know, one out of 10 in the numeric pain rating scale. And that can be a statistical difference, but then that hasn't actually achieved clinical significance. So we can say, well, in one group, their pain decreased from a, from a five to a four. And in the other group, it decreased from a five to a uh, 3.5. Right. And there's a difference in there. And that difference is statistical in it, it, but it's not clinically relevant because what patient is really happy about a difference of, you know, 0.5 or 0.7 on on their, on their outcome, on their pain. So that was another big thing that jumped out to me. And then finally, uh, I like that they use the word haphazard approaches. So (laughs) looking, looking at highly specific manipulation techniques versus a more haphazard approach. And what that brought to my mind 
was in uh, the chiropractic world, and this is not meant to be a slight on chiropractors at all, but uh, I have some buddies who are, who are chiropractors who um, told me about a concept of what's called the flying seven, you know, where every patient that walks through the door in, in, in the chiropractic mills, you know, the clinics that are just rack them and crack them type of clinics that, that aren't doing a lot of, uh, you know, assessment or, or, or true nuanced rehab. They do the flying seven where you crack cervical spine to the right, to the left, you do upper thoracic, you do mid thoracic, you do lower thoracic, and then you do lumbar on each side. So there's your seven techniques. It takes about five minutes to do. You can crack somebody everywhere. And if they have back pain, like that's the super back or neck pain, that's your super haphazard approach. And what you're doing is you're just flying high on either, uh, you know, meaning response and contextual effects or very general nonspecific effects of manual therapy. You know, some things that maybe Joel Bialowski has talked about with his mechanisms of manual therapy talk. And you, you don't have to do this highly specific, you know, intervertebral assessment, palpatory examination, motion, palpation, et cetera. You just, you know, People just walk in and if they're safe for it, you, you just give them a little bit of manual therapy and they're going to have the same response as if you do this highly specific technique. Um, so I can see I can see you're like chomping at the bit to talk about this, Mark. Let's hear what you have. Well, I just think, you know, I can already, you know, I just reflect back to parts of my career where I was like in the specific manual therapy bandwagon. I was a card carrying member with letter lettered polos of support on the specific manual therapy. This would have been a struggle for me to take this study in. Um, and I would have, you know, probably had my cognitive dissonance rolling high because it was definitely a conflicting piece of data for the, you know, the, the world I was living in and the comfortable world I was living in. So, but I, to me, this is further reflection of, of the, the manual therapy worlds of profession. Now I think we'll, and we'll talk about an episode. Is there some Things where maybe specific manual therapy, although probably a lot more than this mechanical Jedi hand tricks that we've you know convinced ourselves and still try to convince ourselves is a reliable way of getting after it. Or are there things that happen when you specifically find a person's pain specifically? But again, we may not get to that today, but um, it, it, it is long since past the time of put up or shut up for those systems that still beat these segmentally specific models into a student's head uh, where we got to go through 15 levels of Jedi training to be able to, it's such a highly skilled to me, it's this old boys club of like, man, you got to kiss the ring and go through the levels before you can say you're part of the club, which to me is ridiculous. I went through that and, 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 uh, you know, achieve my Jedi stat or maybe in my own mind, I thought I did as far as, but achieve the, that level to, oh, gosh, you know, you've, you've been now certified and knighted in, in this Jedi skill of manual therapy. But I think these studies are how much longer do we have to like bury our head in the sand before we kind of peek it out and see that, man, what we're telling students, what we're telling clinicians is not necessary. It's, it's, yeah, it makes us probably feel better, especially if, if you've levered yourself as, you know, identified yourself as a manual therapist, but man, it's time to move forward, especially when it doesn't freaking matter. And patients don't care um, of like your, that stuff. I mean, you, they might care about the ritual you create with it and some of the unnecessarily overly ridiculously complex rituals around it. But if this, if these studies, you know, and a lot of these folks, chiropractic and PTs and stuff, I think everybody's seen that it doesn't necessarily, no, does it mean haphazardly? No, I think there's a lot less, you know, need to be ridiculously specific. You still need to be good at 
screening, making sure people, you know, who are in your clinic, you know, that that neck pain and headache isn't a dissection in progress going on that you're going to be, um, you know, putting that person in, you know, risk. They should be going to the urgent care and or emergency department, not, uh, on, you know, laying down on a table, getting their neck cracked, those type of things still you know, there's some skill of deciding that treatment. I don't get too excited if people crack or don't crack anymore. I just think, um, it, it it's yet to show it's special in regards to any short-term pain modulating intervention, but maybe we'll talk a little bit about more of that. But, um, I think the study does also discussed, um, a bit of some of the things that they thought, you know, some of the clinical discussion around what they found with this, um, their clinical interpretation. Did you want to go into that, Jared, or do we want to save that for episode two? Yeah, I, I think we should save that for episode two because it starts getting into um, the discussion of, you know, does manual therapy need to have any specificity at all? And I think that if we start that now, this episode is going to run about another 30 minutes. Yeah, so we should probably yeah. break it down. For sure. So, you know, stay tuned for episode two. We're going to talk about some of their, the author's reflections, their clinical interpretations, which I thought were good. Um, definitely tickled the biases of what we teach um, our students to try to, you know, put manual therapy in a perspective of not living in any ridiculous side of a dichotomy that patient doesn't exist in the world of patient care. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about, you know, maybe there is there ever a time where like segmentally specific or getting specific um, might be generate better responses? What could be some of the reasoning behind that? Obviously beyond um, Jedi millimeter sensory tricks that we, you know, still continually, uh, you know, can try to convince ourselves that we're capable of. So, Hey, big teaser there. I thought we did a great job uh, teasing our next episode. Hope you guys tune in. And before you wait that week between the episodes, you know, let's, let's, let's temper any hate mail down. I'm just kidding. No, you, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what's, what we, we talked about this episode, your thoughts on the article. Um, we, you know, we're probably going to talk about it in episode two, cause we're probably going to record episode two here quite quickly. Um, but you will definitely, if we have some great discussions coming around that, maybe we'll do episode three of, of, of the discussion around this article. Cause it usually brings out a lot of passions and, and good discussions and let's just keep it collegial and, and make sure nobody's, you know, insulting each other or throwing any ad, uh, you know, ad hominems or anything at each other. Um, let's make it a nice, good discussion, but, um, hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. Make sure you tune into episode two, where we go deeper on, like I said, the, the interpretations of the study and how it might relate to your practice. So until next time, we'll talk to you then. This has been another episode of the modern pain podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.